From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection this hour is made with a young girl in the suburbs of Monroe County. Carolyn Delvecchio Hoffman grew up in the Rochester area. And as she grew into her adulthood, became a community advocate that a lot of people have known in a lot of different circles. More recently, her work with the Monroe County Legislature, representing the 25th District. But before she was even a public figure in her adulthood, she was a kid growing up in the church, and her uncle was the Academy Award-winning actor, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman. Her background is in neuroscience, sociology, and education, with degrees that include MCC, and she's worked as a direct support professional, a campaign consultant, a political strategist. She's been a guest on this program several times discussing different issues and events within the community. But today she's here talking about her background and some of her own story. And we're going to follow her lead because there's a lot to share this hour um, from a woman who's uh, frankly had a very interesting life already. And I am grateful that you've taken the time to be with us. Carolyn Delvecchio Hoffman, a community advocate and Monroe County legislator. Welcome back to the program. Thanks, Evan. Thanks for being interested in my story and having me to to work with you this hour. Um, So part of um, what I want to do at the outset is explain to the audience that you know, as we got to know more about your own story, I think people might see your last name or the name Hoffman, and they obviously Rochester has a great affinity for your uncle, and we'll talk about that coming up. Um, but also, there's a lot that's happened in your life that the more we learned about that, the more we thought, boy, if we could talk about this in a thoughtful way, it might benefit the audience. At the same time, there's a risk in talking about someone who grows up in certain circumstances and I think oversimplifying it or stereotyping or sort of fetishizing certain parts of a story, for example, of a woman growing up in a, you know, a conservative church environment or that kind of a thing. So I want to give you some space to kind of start just by telling us a little bit about yourself and maybe some of those circumstances you grew up in. And we'll kind of see if we can work through them in a way that is productive, if that's fair. Thanks, Evan. Big show, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're going to cover a lot here, I think. Um, you know, one of the things I think that when people here grew up in church and now um, sort of a lefty uh, political activist is they they that sounds so different. How could those two worlds, um, you know, have have a story that joins them? And, and actually... Um, you know, I was a pretty happy kid and that I was doing things that I was good at and that I loved um, that just didn't sort of serve me to continue to do in the church. And so um, things and I mean, you know, my connection to church has evolved and sort of come full circle. So we'll talk about like my connection to church now and like how I've kind of come back to that. But at the time, um, you know, things like um fundraising and organizing and public speaking and community building like these were things that I sort of had natural talent in and that were a big part of of being a part of a church and I was in a lot of leadership roles uh, growing up as a kid and youth group and those types of things and you know as Bernie Sanders kind of came around and started quote unquote preaching uh, about a living wage and health care for everyone those things really resonated with my heart and I found that the skills that I had built organizing in church um, and sort of like working for a better world in church really translated um, to activism, you know, this concern for other people, this sort of bringing people together. And I found that I was actually really good as an organizer and didn't hadn't really known that. And, And that was kind of a pleasant surprise to everyone around me. Who were the most influential figures in your family to you when you were growing up? 
I mean, obviously everyone knows my Uncle Phil um, and, and how heavy of an influence he had, not just on me, but on the world. Um, my mom is a saint, and uh, she she was a deeply spiritual person who really taught me a lot about how to treat people and kind of I got my worldview a lot from my mom. Uh, my dad also was in my life and he um, struggled a lot. And so that had a profound effect on me. Um, and I mean, I had a family, I guess, like everybody else did, you know, surrounded by family, my brothers, my grandmother, my cousins, my aunts and uncles. And when you say, you know, a lot of people know your uncle, we, we, we don't know how tight or not you were with him or how much you saw of him or what you were aware of with him as his sort of star grew. Can you describe a little bit of that? Yeah, I mean, I was really young. So I think um, he, he was having his career, but we were having our family life. And we continued to have, you know, our holiday gatherings. Our, our Fourth of July was a big thing in my family. Like we seemed to like make time to be together. It was like a good summer reason to gather. Um, and he had kids, and so uh, we had time with our cousins. And he was very—he um, did not like the spotlight. Like he would not have wanted to do what I'm doing right now. <laughs> I know he was always kind of like, "Oh, can like Amy Adams do it?" Right? Like it was always like, "Can you know, can someone else do those interviews?" And you know, he was really an artist, artist. And so anything that felt kind of performative or or kind of just like a spotlight for spotlight's sake, I think I think he had like an internal conflict about that because he was just so about like being in his truth and kind of being authentic. And Hollywood isn't isn't always like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um just as a curious aside, what was what was his best movie? Oh my God. <laughs> this is so sacred to me and now I'm gonna say it on live radio and everyone's gonna know, but I'm glad you asked because I love this movie. But to me, his my favorite thing that he ever did was Jack Goes Boating. And it's it's not something that people point to. I you know I don't know if it got good reviews or not, but it was something that like that he starred in. You know he I think he either directed or helped direct, and he was it, this it was like this love story to New York City, and um, and I it's hard for me to watch his movies, but if I watch a movie of his, it's that, and it's usually kind of in private with someone that I really care about. Hard because you miss him. It's hard because for me, grief, I kind of am, I'm one to like freeze and build altars. Um, and so I, everything kind of stopped for me. And I, I, knew, I know like some of my family, you know, they lean in and they watch the films and they, they do these memorials and things like that. And I just, um, I have an altar, you know, at home to him and to others that we've lost. And it's almost like if I feel like if I touch it, it'll change or I'll forget something. And I just everything like both emotionally and physically for me has just kind of frozen in place. And I don't I almost don't want it to move because I don't I don't want to forget or lose that connection. Yeah, I'd been hosting the show for about six weeks when he died. And um, around that time, we lost Robin Williams as well. And um, I, I remember the shock of it. Because I'm not a big movie buff, but, you know, I thought your uncle was truly the best at what he did, the best I've ever seen. And, um, you know, of course, I didn't know his family, I, I, but I just ached for, um, you know, what, what we all lost there. And I'm not going to ask you if it shocked you. It should shock anybody. But I do want to know how you view the work of trying to deal with a crisis that, you know, nine years later, um, 
Fentanyl is a huge crisis. Overdose crisis is a huge problem. We haven't really figured out quite how to to turn it around yet. And I don't. Uh, it's probably very deeply interconnected with the economy and and all kinds of uh, very complex, nuanced issues. But can you talk about how you view that work and um, if it remains personal for you? Uh, highly personal. Um, I like to make sure that folks who are also struggling or kind of wanting to walk out of, um, you know, that that type of coping mechanism, um, that he, I think it's important to tell this part of the story because I think it, it gives hope and I, I don't want recovery to feel hopeless because I think when we lost him, it there was parts of this that felt like, man, if he couldn't do it, you know, and um, so I want to say that he was sober um, most of my life. Um, I, when I was, I was the first grandchild. And so there was kind of, you know, I was told later that there was kind of this vibe in the family that everyone got sober or like finished getting sober. Like this didn't, people, folks didn't want this to carry on uh, to the next generation. Um, And so he was sober, you know, most of my life until he started slipping. And one of the things that happened was, you know, he was a really, first of all, he lost his therapist and that's really hard. Oh Um, man. Yeah, his therapist passed. Um, and so that's really hard, right? So your support system is really important and really is effective. And also he um, he was a major um, believer in in like AA programs and and he was a regular, you know, attendee of those. And um, somebody taped one of his shares at AA and sold it to a tabloid. And so AA was no longer a safe space oh. for him. Um, and, you know, I very much blame whoever that was. Uh, you know, there's a few a few people I'd like to have conversations with about how and why he passed. But so losing a therapist and then not being able to go to these anonymous programs anymore. Um, and, you know, I think the call that, you know, he had to make the call to us as a family to say, you know, this story is coming um, in the tabloids. Um, and again, you know, just talking about how he was such a private person, right? Like he wouldn't have wanted to do this show. And now you've got, you know, this sort of like horrible, like shamey, you know, private issue. And so like, you know, his support systems, unfortunately, got really shook. Um, and, uh, and he was gone within a couple of years. So thanks for that. Uh, whoever did that, um, maybe don't ever do that to anybody again. Sometimes we think about fame. And um, we, we boil down the conversation of, well, boy, but it's hard to go to the grocery store. But not being able to go to addiction support meetings because people sell you out is a whole different level. Yeah, yeah. And imagine like how the ghost of that has followed me. You know what I mean? I am in like a very also a field that is very sort of objectified and sort of de- depersonalized. Um, and I'm constantly aware, as as most people in my field are, of, you know, um, that something like that can happen you know, in a, in a malicious way. Um, and so I do share that to say that if there are folks who are listening who are in recovery and recovery is any positive change and we love you, um, that, you know, there were some pretty terrible extenuating circumstances in, in what he went through and sort of how how that happened. So, you know, keep doing what works for you. It is possible to recover. Um, and I know he would want he would want you to know that too. Um, and uh, yeah, I, you know, it was very unexpected of course I remember I had spent I had spent that night up I had been up all night uh the night before we found out that he died and uh, apparently so had he 
Um, and I had watched a movie that was similar, and I'm going to forget the details, Evan, but I had watched a movie that was similar to the themes of doubt, um, and he had been kind of annoyed at me on my take on doubt. Like, I think I came out of the movie, and I was like, they definitely did it, and he was, like, annoyed, you know? <laughs> he was annoyed? Yeah, he was annoyed, but he was so smart and so wise that his annoyance made me kind of go inward. Like, I wanted to figure out what I was missing, you know, or didn't know. So I had been up all night the night before I lived. I was living on Beach Ave um, on the water there in this, like, incredible little apartment on this beautiful, you know, Ontario lake that freezes over in the winter and, like, blows in your face. And um, I had watched this movie, and I, I, you know, it was the wee hours of the morning, and I drove over to my mom's in Brighton. And I was like, Mom, I figured it out. I can't wait to talk to Uncle Phil. I, I understand what he meant. Um and like that was like pretty unusual, right? Like I, I was up all night and I drove to my mom's house and told her something about Uncle Phil. And within a few hours, um, she got the call and I had to make the call to my brother, my brother Phil. There's like a succession of Phil's in my family. And, um, and I think there were a couple places, I think, for different ones of us where he had been like heavy on our hearts or heavy on our spirits. Um, and and you know you kind of I don't I mean I don't I don't think anyone blames themselves maybe a little bit but it's really hard if you if you spend all night right thinking about your loved one who then pa it's like Jesus maybe I should have called <laughs> you know um, I hope you don't do that to yourself though I I, I don't but it, it's a weird it's you know I'll never forget that night so some of your advocacy includes this past August participating in that vigil held at the Liberty Pole as part of International Overdose Awareness Day um, and calling on Governor Hochul to use executive action to create overdose prevention centers. There, are, As you know, there's a lot of debate about um, everything from safe injection sites to um, what harm reduction means and how broad that term should mean. Can you give me some of your thoughts on that? Sure. I mean, our, our mental health system... Um, while I will always, you know, vote to expand it and I will support increasing it, it isn't working in a lot of ways. And we have so medicalized and pathologized um, what some people refer to as addiction um, that it's it's not helping folks. And so I, I think I was talking to directly impacted people about, you know, is this really the next step? Is the most helpful thing? And one of the things that's most important to them around safe injection sites is humanizing and depathologizing um, people who use drugs. And, you know, Evan, like, there's a big thing here of, like, what type of coping mechanisms are available to folks. There's a, there's a class issue there, right? Like, if you don't have $300 to spend per hour on a psychologist, and that is what it costs to, to get a really, truly you know, the best of the best help, you know, but you do have 10 or $15 to spend on a bottle of alcohol or a bottle or, or, or drugs, you know, you have to understand that like, these are all different types of coping mechanisms and some of them are more harmful than others. And if we're only providing certain, everyone needs emotional support, right? So where are you going to get that from? And if we haven't provided that as a society and we haven't provided that as stable housing and we haven't provided that as healthy food, like people are going to get support in some way and it, and and so what's available to people is a class issue and so i think it's sort of like destigmatizing the ways that we're finding support and helping people who want to find emotional support in 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 ways that are less harmful 
you know, and so that's when we talk about harm reduction, right? Like, you know, if you're in, if you're actively using and you just make that commitment to make sure that you're, you have clean needles, that's harm reduction. And that is moving closer to, um, to, to being a safe, you know, coping more safely. But we sort of pathologize and stigmatize like the types of coping mechanisms that we're making available to people. Uh, and so I think some of it is just breaking that down and saying people are going to cope. How can we provide safer ways to cope and how can we be there for them until they're ready to do that because they're human beings? In including safe injection sites? Oh, I absolutely support safe yeah. injection sites. I mean, the word injection, I think, is like people are like, oh, but listen, if we didn't take care of people when they were kids. We didn't take care of them when they were teens. We didn't take care of them when they were young adults. And now they're they're dealing with, you know, the trauma from that. And at some point, we have to be family again to each other. And, you know, our immediate families aren't always equipped, right? So we have to provide a safe environment because, again, it's emotional support, right? So if you provide a safe environment where you're getting a hug, you're in a place where you're not going to die, um, and, and people are providing for you the way that maybe, um, you know, society wasn't able to do along the way. People are going to start to get their emotional support needs met in other ways. And a lot of people don't want their emotional support needs met by drugs that are very dangerous. You know, given the choice, you know, a lot of people want to do something different. And so it's just providing a family atmosphere, a community atmosphere that provides opportunity to walk out. So on the one side is your the personal loss that you still feel in the advocacy that you do. And on the other side, now you're in county government. I mean, it's a very different um, kind of work than it would be if you're at the state legislature or if you're um, at a level of government that might have a little bit more say on, for example, safe injection. Or, or maybe, I don't know, can you describe sort of the legislative landscape that would green light or has red lighted? I mean, I don't, I don't actually know um, myself what it would take if this is going to happen in places like this? Sure. So they're already doing this in New York City. Um, you know, some of the barriers are state and federal ones, mm -hmm. just as far as, you know, um, what type of places can be opened and operated. Um, but um, I think, you know, we just, it's about being gentle with the community. It's about having the conversations with folks who might be hesitant. It's about including neighbors. And it's about just explaining why it works, you know? And I think we have to... Um, the same way that we're wanting to create community and family for people um, to be able to walk out of something that's maybe a more harmful way of coping, we want to create community and family for folks that that might feel startling to. Um, but I just don't think that this is as hot or controversial of an issue as it's as it's being drummed up to be. I think that our society and our community has come a long way in understanding, um, you know, these as health crises instead of moral failings. If we did get to a point where in our community it was greenlit, would you participate in trying to find a site that was amenable to the community? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, totally. I think, you know, we have great um, folks doing harm reduction work already in the community. And um, I, I just I want to be very, very gentle with this because I don't I don't want to accidentally move too quickly and have it and have there be a knee-jerk reaction. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to work with the community, work with community partners, work with directly impacted folks um, and, and until we're all on the same page, you know, and this is something that we can can figure out together. I do want to make a real the clear point, because we haven't yet, that there, um, there are directly impacted folks leading this work here and that um, and the class difference between someone famous struggling and somebody um, who is unhoused 
um, struggling and, and the, the different access, the different lives that are lived there. And I think like I, I want to be really mindful always of folks who are struggling with multiple intersectionalities of, of things and not say like, oh, well, you know, there are things that are the same for uncle with my uncle Phil, but there are things that are really different too. Yeah, I actually scribbled down those words as you said them. You said that when your uncle Philip Seymour Hoffman died, one of the things that hit you was like, my God, if he couldn't do it. And I think what you're saying is if he, with all of the advantages of, you know, um, resources, uh, income, opportunity that he had, if he couldn't um, overcome addiction or, or get past it, then how is someone who's going to have all of the disadvantages? I think that's what you were saying. And, and I do wonder now, the better part of a decade later, if you think that gap between the advantages and the challenges of people to deal with these issues, if it's gotten wider or are we moving in a direction that understands how to approach these issues? Yeah, I mean, that's why I want people to know that his his support systems fell out from under them so yeah. it doesn't feel so, you know, so hopeless. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the things that happened to uh, humanize uh, people who use drugs, Evan, was that it started to be seen as uh, white um, people's children's problem. And so, you know, we have legislation, um, you know, from a couple decades ago where, you know, different kinds of, of crack cocaine had different punishments and it, and it, it was along the lines of, you know, what, what were rich people using and what were poor people using. And so I think that, you know, there has been, a, you know, a huge disparity in how we view people who use drugs. And I think that we have the come further along because it, this has started to, openly at least affect more people, although I think that this was always um, affecting a broad spectrum of folks and just not being talked about. Before we turn to some other subjects, I do want to mention that there is a life-size bronze sculpture of Philip Seymour Hoffman at the George Eastman Museum, and um, um, the sculpture was installed on the sidewalk in front of the Dryden Theater last May. It was originally on loan to the museum. It will now remain there. It's The sculpture of, of Hoffman was originally destined to end up in Greenwich Village, where he lived for a number of years, but the statue has been donated to the museum, and his mother, Marilyn O'Connor... So she likes the fact that the sculpture depicts her son in motion, walking toward the steps of the theater. O'Connor said that that was very much the way Hoffman conducted his life, always moving, very active. She said you would see pictures of him walking, walking with his kids, taking them to school, at the playground with them, always moving. And the sculpture is very, very typical of Phil. I wonder how you feel about it. Um, I think the sculpture is great for those who uh, want to remember him that way. Obviously, like I said, we're all... Um, kind of mourning and grieving and memorializing him um, in different ways. The first, when I saw it, I was like, I can't, he would be so mortified <laughs> if we had tried to do something like that, you know, when he was, when he was still with us. But I think it's really lovely for the community. Oh, I see what you're saying. I think it's really it's out of character for him to have wanted a statue of himself. Anyway. He would not. I got you. But this is what we do when people pass, right? I think most people, when they were alive, would be like, yeah, it's okay. But um, I, it's really lovely. I mean, I think the person, you know, it was a labor of love and that it's a really beautiful thing for the community to have. You know, he did a lot um, at the Dryden and I and I honestly, Evan, I haven't even gone to see it because, like I said at the beginning of the show, I kind of froze with stuff. I, I don't kind of do as much of like the memorial. I just shared, you know, something about the film series that the Dryden is doing on my social media for the first time because I was like, you know what? I want people to know about this. 
but it's so hard for me. Like, I don't know if I'm going to make it to those, you know? So it's just so complicated, but I think it's really, the community loves him and really feels connected to him. And I think it's great for folks to have that, you know, material piece. Let me editorialize a little here. One thing I don't like is when sort of famous or wealthy people make a donation, but they demand that their name goes on something so that, you know, they could be remembered forever. I'm going to have my name. And it's like, that's a condition for giving to a place. I always wonder, I want to ask people like, why are you doing this? There's a difference though, when we lose someone in the community says, I'm not going to let this person's memory fade. And, And you know what? In his life, he never would have wanted a statue, but we loved him. And, um, Sadly, he's gone now, but we've got this. So I, I, I just think, I mean, I understand how you, you, you're saying he would feel, uh, but this community loved him. By the way, a tribute to Philip Seymour Hoffman's a, a year-long film series at the Dryden coming up on March 11th. They're, they're going to run Flawless, March 24th, Magnolia, April 22nd, Almost Famous is coming up. And I do want to grab a phone call from a listener who wants to weigh in on some of the work that Carolyn is doing. This is Shirley in Rochester. Hi, Shirley. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Hi, Shirley. Hi. First of all, let me say that I had no idea that you were related to Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's how how uh, discreet you are about your connection. But I just wanted to say that uh, I really applaud the work you are doing and the intelligence and sensitivity you bring to your work in the legislature, Carolyn. And the comment you made about some of the sensitivity that you, you you exhibit was in the comment you made about how drug addiction and the the inequitable resources available to people and the fact that it's become much more, the fact that addiction awareness and resources have become much more readily available because it's affecting more whites. That's the kind of sensitivity and, and bravery you bring to your work. And I just want to applaud your efforts and let you know that I appreciate you. And thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Shirley. Thank you so much for calling in. Shirley, I, I appreciate that phone call. And I'm going to mention, because Carolyn mentioned this before the program in the days leading up to it, and um, I think she was not only self-aware, but actually kind enough to, to, to raise this. So I'll just mention, listeners may know, uh, Carolyn Delvecchio Hoffman is running for re-election. Um, and yes, uh, we'll have opponents, that's politics. And so those uh, people run for office, they will absolutely be welcome on this program as well. I just want to say that. That's up. That's out of the way. Um, I also want to sort of echo Shirley's point. You know, when we first talked to Carolyn Delvecchio Hoffman on this program about various community issues, the subject of, you know, uh, being related to Philip Seymour Hoffman never came up. I didn't know for a while either. Um, And it's not something that I ever saw Carolyn sort of leveraging in any way. It's, It's very interesting. But you're sort of discreet in doing the work. And um, and the reason I went to it early in the program is just because I, I didn't want listeners to think that when we talk about some of your own, the other parts of your past, that, again, that we're like fetishizing certain things. Or I think, sometimes I think people on the political left think, oh, well, you were born in the Christian right, but and that was wrong, but now you're on the left and that's right. And it's, you know, this easy sort of simplification. So after we take our only break of the hour, I want to talk to Carolyn about what has informed some of her, her views and her work. She talked about um, the effect of Bernie Sanders. I, I'm very curious to know if that still holds uh, true today and um, how she sees some of um, those ripples in, in local government and, and some of the work she's doing. So a lot more to talk about on the other side of this break with Carolyn Delvecchio Hoffman. 
I'm Evan Dawson. Wednesday on The Next Connections, I have been an AI skeptic. All right, a downright curmudgeon. Well, I've got a couple of guests coming in who work in the tech world and have a lot of optimism about the good that AI can bring to our collective future. So what am I missing? They're going to try to offer an intervention on Wednesday. This is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. By the way, that phone caller, Shirley, I think that was Shirley Thompson. Sure was. <laughs> yeah. Shirley, I should say as well, is well known in this community um, for some of her elected work. And Shirley, it's been a while since we've talked. We should we should talk more. Um, she's just one of those people who always has such interesting you know, encyclopedic knowledge of local government and causes. She's also just a deeply embodied person, yeah. and she's yeah. she gives great advice. Uh, and she's been an incredible mentor to me and gave me one of the best advice that I have ever gotten in in this work, which is, you know, if you are, you know, a truth teller and if you're in an authentic place, that's going to be really threatening to folks. And so if if you find that that's happening, like she just comforted me to say, like, it's because telling the truth is is such a, a radical and um, intimidating thing to be doing in the field that we're in. Listening in Canada, David says, wow, y'all are lucky to have such a thoughtful, caring person in your community talking about about you. Um, Thank you so much. That's from David in Canada. I want to work backwards on a few things here. So, you know, you mentioned um, the way that you connected to the movement that Bernie Sanders um, helped launch. And I've, I've said on this program before, and I'm curious to kind of get your take on it. I grew up thinking about like my own dad. And I was always like, you should run for office. And my father would always say to me, that he would always say, Ev, you know what happens when idealistic people run for office? They either get beaten down and they quit or they become what they despise. And today I'm like, Dad, that's like the most cynical thing ever. But I understand why he felt that way. He, he really saw the toxicity of politics and didn't even want to think about dipping his toe in. And um, I'm curious to know when you first thought, you know, I'm going to run for office or I'm you know, do you fight your own cynicism about politics? How do you how do you feel about it? Yes, I've actually been surprised this past year that it works. Uh, I think I had my own, um, you know, I believe in um, talk about harm reduction the whole show. I believe in participating in electoral politics as harm reduction. Right. So not this sort of like, um, you know, I think the system that we have um, has got to go. But in the meantime, if I can get between the system and my constituents and my neighbors and reduce the harm that it's causing, I'm happy to do that. And I think um, I'm, I'm happy to have the chance to explain this. I think that we're always navigating power in politics, no matter what we're doing in life. For instance, um, lots of us pay rent. And there's certain things you're not going to do or say to your landlord um, or to your boss because they have power over you. Or maybe you do, but there's a high consequence, right? And so we're always navigating power. And I think there's like this, um, there's this dirty sense of like uh, folks who work come into this field navigating power. And I think that's because a lot of folks who've been in politics navigate power on behalf of themselves and on behalf of maybe their wealthy allies. And so we do need um, people who are deeply connected to themselves, deeply connected to their bodies, to their work, to community, to come in here and navigate these spaces. I mean, I'm an activist elected on a 29 member legislature, 
right? So I don't have full power in that room. And so some of my power comes from being able to build relationships um, and, and work together with folks. And maybe someday we'll have, you know, an activist elected majority on that board and we'll be able to move more quickly on things. But I think that it's seen as like a, a dirty thing if you have to navigate that you don't have full power in a room in these spaces. But I mean, I'm also navigating in my real life that I don't have full power over Amazon or Starbucks, right? And so we're always navigating, you know, these oppressive systems. And I think, you know, the difference is, is somebody in community, is someone constantly doing the personal work on themselves to make sure that we're coming from a place of, of, of healing and wholeness? When you mentioned Starbucks, what's the oppression that you see there? Well, you know, Starbucks workers are trying to unionize right now. Um, and so I think I'm just it, talking about how we're constantly navigating um, these these systems, right? Like if if we were to completely uh, divest from everything that was uh, that all of the power systems that were kind of impeding on our freedom, like you know we wouldn't use Amazon or Starbucks or these types of places that are like imperfect. And so engaging with electoral politics is part of what I see as engaging in a world overall that we're we're navigating and trying to break down some of these uh, oppressive systems that use power in the wrong way. But I think that people see that happens in politics only. And and for me, it's like, this is always happening. I'm always navigating, you know, who has power and and sort of these oppressive systems. But you say that you were surprised to find out that it can work in the last year. What's an example? Where has it worked? Yeah, well, I'm a lefty, so we're kind of like, you know, there's this tendency to be to kind of put all of politics in the garbage, right? And so, you know, there is that school of thought. But, I mean, this past year, I was able to work with Senator Cooney's office to um, get one of my constituents over $10,000 in rent um, back pay from the state, you know, that those monies that were available for folks. Um, after even like their their attorney had told them that there was no path forward on that. And that person is did not get evicted and is still in their house. So there's a lot of stories like that where because of the position that I'm in, I'm able to advocate for folks. And like every time it works, I'm like, it works. It works. I wish it worked faster. I wish it worked harder. But there have been moments. I mean, I got to stand with the, you know, the nurses at Rochester General Hospital you know, as they were unionizing and as they were kind of fighting back against the anti-union union efforts, you know, as someone in a position of power saying, hey, like, I support what folks are doing. I mean, as an activist, to be able to stand as an elected with folks who are unionizing, that's that's like the dream for me. That I mean, that's amazing. And moments like that feel like, OK, maybe this is this is worth it. But let me let me put some in the column in the column that would make people cynical. The public defenders battle. The, the voting district maps and all of the vitriol that came out there. Should that shake the public trust in, in the way government is functioning? I think it absolutely shakes the public trust in the way government is functioning. I think that's kind of what we're talking about. Okay. Has it shaken your trust, your own faith? I mean, I think I knew, having observed the county legislature for, you know, long before <laughs> signing up to be a part of it, I knew what I was getting myself into and and you expect these kinds of things. And I think that that is why a lot of people don't want to um, be a part of especially local government. And it's why I'm so grateful to everyone who has stood beside me um, and who, you know, like I have amazing friends, uh, my friend Maria, my friend Aaron. Oh, no, now I'm going to name people and then not name people. I mean, I'm <laughs> Michelle, right? Like I have like uh, Aaron, Noel, like there's this, this is like these wonderful people in my life who, uh, who are also kind of like, you know, got their helmet on, they're doing the harm reduction thing in these spaces. And we just, we support each other. So 
yeah, I mean, I think like you can't go in alone. You know, you can't be some Yahoo who's like, I'm going to fix this. Like, you you know, you have to really have a team, um, both personally and, and publicly to kind of navigate these spaces. But man, if if we don't move in as harm reduction, it gets a lot worse. Let me get Peter and Arondequoit on the phone next with Carolyn Delvecchio Hoffman. Hi, Peter. Hi, Evan. Um, I would like to applaud Carolyn for her refreshing concept of how today's leaders are looking at the progression of not only Rochester, but their community outside of Rochester. Um, I am a 55-year-old man who has worked his entire life and unfortunately had a very significant um, drug addiction um, for about 25 years that finally all crashed around me about 485 sober days ago. And to hear somebody doing what she's doing because of the love for a place that she calls home is just very refreshing. She, she's given me the um, smile on my face for Rochester that hasn't been there in a long time. And I just thank you, Carolyn. Thank, thank you so much. Uh, the rest of the way offline. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, we love you too, Peter. Um, I also just got an email from your former piano teacher. Oh, my God. <laughs> awesome. Uh, she says, I just got in my car to hear your interview with Carolyn. Oh, my. I used to teach her piano lessons. I am so proud to hear of her activism and growth. Cats from Carrie. Oh, my gosh. Hi, Carrie. <laughs> um, Carrie, <laughs> I still play the piano you know, my own way. I never learned to do it the way you wanted me to. Sorry about that. <laughs> but she, that wasn't her fault. You were probably the, the, no, like, probably the student's No, I was so fault. hard. Like, I was, like, really hard to teach piano to. Like, I was like, can I just play, you know, like, can I just, like, fool around? I mean, like, I'm so grateful that my parents put me in, you know, piano lessons. And, and they, they had us in all these things. And now I understand. Like, you put your kids in everything. And then what it's what they stick with. Um, but thank God Carrie taught me piano because... I literally still will sneak into a coffee shop in Rochester with an old piano that barely works on a Saturday night and try to play without anybody seeing me. Um, I don't have one, like one of my life, I, I have my own home now and I, I want badly to have a piano there. It's a huge hurdle. But um, so I go find, if anyone knows any good secret public pianos in Rochester, um, I do kind of slip around and play them. And it, it's huge. It's hugely therapeutic. And actually, after I left church, Evan, which was the thing you wanted to talk about, and we're, we're finding we're our way, <laughs> um, I, I stopped playing, not intentionally, but it just I was playing in church. That was kind of where I was doing it. And a few years ago, I woke up one morning and I was like, I play an instrument. What am I doing? Why don't I do that? You know, and I just started playing again. So I love that Carrie wrote in, and I I have really fond memories of doing recitals and all these things and her trying to make me learn to read music, um, which I still am not great at. Sorry about that. Let me also say, shout out to everybody teaching music to kids. Um, You are giving beautiful skills that are... Look, it's still with Carolyn today there, Carrie. So It's huge. It's It's really helpful to me. Um, The reason I've been... I'm not hesitating to get... It's not like the main part of the conversation. We've buried the lead. Um, no, we've just been working through a number of parts of your story. But I, I didn't want, as I've said, to make it seem like, um, well, you you know, you escaped that thing. Um, I want to have a real conversation. You even indicated at the top of the program that 
a lot of your views about a lot of things have changed over the years, but you've also sort of come back to church in a way. Can you tell that story a bit? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I talked about how, you know, a lot of the, the skill sets and the talents transferred. And um, one of the things that I think makes my life or story or kind of how I show up in the world really interesting is that I, because I grew up in a very devout family, I had a deep spiritual practice as a kid. You know, thing what we think about um, now as sort of meditating, like I was a very devout kid. And so I spent um, you know, like deep time um, in the word and and sort of pursuing a relationship with God. And, you know, I would go on retreats like this was I've always been this sort of deeply spiritual person. And so I show up and, and that's continued. And so I kind of show up um, with some of the things that you bring out of those spaces, right? Like a deep revelation of do no harm and and sort of the benefits of loving people and forgiveness. And that gets a little confusing in the world that I'm in now, right? Because the rules are different. Um, but uh, I, I say that to say that I it's a very spiritual path, and I've and I can now as, as an older person, like I see the benefit of of being in a church as as we've completely sort of isolated. Like our culture is so isolating, and we I feel like we just keep isolating more, and then offering to add more therapy, <laughs> and it's a strange. But so if there's any churches out there that are are progressive, uh, you know, open to the queer community and uh, also full of the Holy Ghost, I I haven't been able to really find that. And, you know, a Friday night service would, would be better. I'm not a morning person. <laughs> not you, you, or um, there, there's God. Oh, be. yeah, there's great. I, you know, I grew up in, you know, what I grew up in was this sort of charismatic, Pentecostal-flavored Christian church. I think, like, you either did or you didn't. You know, some people are listening and they're like, yeah, I know exactly what she's talking about, and nobody else. Is. And I got you. So there's, um, I mean, I was a, I... I was singing and dancing in church. Like the church that I grew up in was very like spiritual gifts heavy. And and so, yes, there are a lot of progressive spiritual spaces. um, And I just still nothing has kind of been quite right. So Mm. still. And I didn't mean to single anybody out. There's a long list of them. South Wedge Mission, uh, Pastor Deb Swift, Barr Adams. There's so many people. I mean, there's a, we're just getting scratching. And I will say a lot of those ministers have been there for me personally when I've needed them too. And we have really great, um, we have great faith leaders in our community. So I was baptized Presbyterian in a family that didn't really go to church. And then I was 14 and I was like, I want to figure out the secrets of the universe, you know, and, um, did a lot of studying and reading and went to a lot of different, um, faith structures and chose to convert to Catholicism on my own. And, um, I was leading retreats in high school, and then I was like reading a lot of the Bible. And by the time I was in college, I was like, "Oh no!" I mean, I mean, there was a lot that I think is beautiful and important, and then there was a lot that I really struggled with. And it, it, it. The more I read, the more it was like, "This seems it was mostly written by like you know, uh, you know, some dudes of the time," which is fine. Like, but it didn't strike me as like infallible word of God. And I've really struggled back and forth with a lot of things myself. Um, the show's not about me. I just relate that, like, I think a lot of people um, spend a lot of time in formative years, kind of, especially if you read the texts of things and you go, huh. Um, and sometimes it resonates and sometimes it pushes you away. Was there something that pushed you away a bit? Was there something that that caused you to question more? Yeah. So the <clears throat> political circles I grew up in were pretty um, conservative and um 
Uncle Phil again, right? Like there was this conversation with him that was pivotal for me where we were talking about abortion and I have I've since actually had an abortion, which is, I think, another really interesting story that maybe we can tell another time. But um, and he was like, yeah, yeah, abortion. No dead babies. I get it. But like, what about after what about soldiers after they turn 18? And it was like there was a lot of questions for me that I had, you know, like um, inconsistencies that as I was getting older, I was starting to see, you know, with the political view that had been presented to me. And um, and I think, you know, for most of my family, too. Right. The past eight years, have, a lot of Republicans are like, whoo, not that kind of Republican, you know, like people have kind of distanced themselves because of how rude of a person Donald Trump was. But um, so, yeah, so my uncle was like, yeah, I mean, like, what about the rest of their lives? And that kind of helped shake me free and kind of name some of like the inconsistencies that I had been seeing. And so I became someone who was sort of disillusioned with politics. I became one of these like, well, I don't vote raters, which is like a really popular position for a young person, I think, to, to have. And um, when when uh, when Bernie Sanders came around, I realized that it wasn't that I didn't believe in voting. It was that I didn't have any hope. Um, and, uh, I, I followed Bernie Sanders across the country in a way. Um, and, and kind of the rest is history. I realized that the things that were that, you know, at the same time, uh, you know, the civil rights movement of our time was taking off the movement for black lives, the fight for 15, all of these things lit me up again in a way that I probably had been. And so I, I came home and started working on these issues. I, I realized everything I cared about was happening about happening in Rochester. And I moved uh, to the city and, Kind of the rest is history. You still have a relationship with your family, though, who kind of raised you that way. Oh, absolutely. And and okay. And so, I think that's an example of um, the way that a lot of people evolve and change and move. And it's interesting. Carolyn talks about looking for a church. The last few years, we've seen the value of community, the value of being together. And um, I was in my younger years, I was more cynical as I became uh, an adult about organized religion and I'm less cynical now. I'm I'm I get it. I understand a lot of the communitarian value there. So, um so maybe I don't know, maybe you'll find something. Who knows? Um I, I was like maybe if I say it on air then like the person will <laughs> the person who has the Holy Ghost queer yeah. positive progressive church will will that meets on a Friday night will find me. If you're out there, I'd love to meet you. Before I get back to the phones, one more quick question on this. Um what's the important part of your story that you would want people to understand about you? Um that doesn't sort of overly stereotype, but understands um, the evolution that you've had. You know, I think there's this caricature of of Christians because it it's it's help it drives a good story. It can be very dramatic, um, and I, I you know I think that what's what's different or what I understand from growing up in it is that people are told this is God loves you a lot. This is what God wants. We're not really sure why, but we trust God, and so that's what we're doing. And so, like the 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 people that I grew up with, were centering love, and we're told that love was, you know, these certain things in these certain ways. And there was a there was very much a push, like when other churches, you know, there's like the famous Westboro Baptist, or whatever. But other churches yeah, would yeah. do stuff like that. We were it was like people would come down very hard on us to say like we do not treat people that way. That's very wrong. That's not how Jesus would treat people. And so I think like you said, like you kind of grow through. And if, if you're following love, I, you, you kind of start to go, hmm, well, I'm not sure about that. And I'm not sure about that. 
you kind of start to let things go and you grow and you evolve. But I mean, I was raised, um, you know, in a culture that said like, love your neighbor above yourself. And so like that look ended up looking a little different for me. And I think that's what makes me a little bit of a different person, like in the, in the world that I'm in now. Um, and so I think like, as far as being understood, just knowing that I grew up in an extremely different culture than the one that I'm living in now. And I, I've made mistakes and, or just, you know, blunders because I, I didn't learn this, you know, I learned, you know, what a very, in a very tight knit kind of community oriented place. And so again, I'm like really grateful to my friends who have, you know, stood up for me, protected me and helped me navigate that in a world that wasn't necessarily, um, you know, trying to be compassionate with somebody who was kind of learning the ropes, um, later in life, you know, a lot of the lessons that folks learned when they were teenagers, I had to learn kind of on the fly as an adult without a lot of safe, like landing space. Right. And so like, I, you know, I do have, um, people like my friends, Maria and Aaron and and others, again, the naming Noel that have been that safe space (laughs) and who have said like, we got you and, and we're not going to leave you and we're going to figure this out. And I I really appreciate that because it's been wild. Um, and there's a great Ted talk. Um, by someone I think it's called I grew up in a cult it was heaven and hell by Lilia Tarawa Tarara Tarawa and I don't I wouldn't refer to I wouldn't say that I grew up in a cult but what she talks about and how what she describes is really helpful to understand because there was hugely beautiful things and things that also were difficult um boy running late let me I got to get John from Rochester on the phone who's been waiting hi John go ahead Yes. Uh, hi. Can you hear me all right? I got you on speakerphone. Yeah, I, I can. We're running a little tight, John, but go ahead. Okay. All right. Um, I, I just want to thank Carolyn for being so personally honest. And um, I just wanted to share that my uh, I have a son-in-law that died about eight months ago. And he, he and my daughter have been really heavy drinkers. And, um, and it took uh, months, but we finally got the... Uh, medical examiner report that he died of a, a cocaine and fentanyl overdose. And, um, oh, and yeah, um, you know, um, and I'm really lucky. I'm, I was a crack cocaine addict and um, I've been in recovery. I've been free, drug free for seven years now. And back then there wasn't so much mixing uh, lacing of uh things with uh fentanyl and um yeah. now there is it's really bad no, it's absolutely Thank you so, much. so sorry john advocacy and you know i have friends who are in the free needle exchange program and um and um i carry around a narcan kit just in case and uh you never know you just never know and um and thanks for being so honest this is really um, you're 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 talking about some really personal things, and um, you're so brave. Well, John, I, uh-huh. I, you are too for making that phone call, John. And I'm so sorry for your loss. But as we get ready to wrap, John's talking about always thinking about helping people, carrying Narcan. Final thoughts from you on that, Carolyn? I mean, I just want to say thank you for taking care of yourself and and anyone out there. What what you do to care for yourself is what you do to care for the community. And so, uh, to anyone who's listening who is you know, picking up the Narcan or, or doing those harm reduction things. Thanks for what you're doing to take care of yourself and uh, call us if you need us, right? Yeah. It, John, so much love to you. I'm so sorry what you've lost, but that last point he's making as well is really important. Um, 
There's a lot of fentanyl. There's a lot of people who, you know, are looking for one thing and they don't know they're getting another. A lot of tragedy. And, um, boy, I, I, I hope the work that can continue that will take us in a different direction. Thank you, John. And Carolyn Delvecchio Hoffman, this hour has flown by, but I am grateful that you've taken the time to come in and, and tell your story. Thank you for doing that. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Evan. This was a great conversation. Carolyn Delvecchio Hoffman is a Monroe County legislator running for re-election. Anyone running against her or anyone running in general, um, you know where to find us and you'll have access to these airways too. Uh, from the whole team at Connections, it's Evan and Rob and David and Megan. Thanks for listening. We're back with you tomorrow on Member Supported Public Radio.